She thumps a cane and drinks champagne She's formidable and judgmental But we can guarantee That she's a quintessential Lady D But recognizes great potential What would Danbury do? Welcome to What Would Danbury Do? Your guide to Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series From A to V Friends, we have made it The final Bridgerton is about to meet his match And what a roller coaster it's been In the final Bridgerton book, Gregory falls in love, and it's not as bad as we remembered. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as at BridgertonPod, and we'd love for you to tweet us using the hashtag WWDDPod. When I was 16, I went to leadership camp um, and met a boy there called Matt, and I went home and told my mum I'd met the man I was going to marry. Nice. <laughs> so I am Gregory. I too Except went to leadership camp a- when I was 16 and met a boy named Adam. And I know exactly <laughs> so how I don't know what leadership <laughs> camp is. <laughs> it's a place where you go to meet boys, Rudy. <laughs> Hi, my name's Adele. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Rudy. Julia Quinn's On the Way to the Wedding was published by Avon Books in 2006. The story takes place in 1827 towards the end of the Georgian period and the dedication to Paul reads, and also for Paul, just because. Which incidentally is a direct repetition of Book 5's dedication. Gregory is the seventh of the Bridgerton clan, and he falls in love at first sight with the beautiful Hermione Watson. Our heroine, however, is standing right next to Hermione, the overlooked and underappreciated Lady Lucinda Abernathy. But Lucy is practically engaged, so it's fine. She totally doesn't care. There's also a lot of appreciation for the backs of necks, and an energy to the book overall that I can only describe as Benedict 2.0. It's the last book of the series, and we've got a wedding to get to. So this book clearly came out very long after Harry Potter, right? Because I'm not entirely sure that anybody would have known how to pronounce Hermione's name if it hadn't. Because I know for at least the first four books, I was saying Hermione. So I'm really pleased that at least this time we get to like reestablish Hermione back into like the naming lexicon and be able to pronounce it correctly. Isn't it wonderful that it's Hermione Watson, like because Hermione Granger played by Emma Watson. I was having a lot of trouble with that while reading. Oh, I didn't notice, but you're right. I wonder if that was deliberate or if that was sort of a subconscious little thing that just happened as she was writing i have gone and double checked the like julia quinn's website and she says that quite a few people have asked if the name hermione watson is an ode to jk rowling um and in particular hermione granger played by emma watson um the answer is no it's just a coincidence or possibly something from the subconscious Mm. um and then says at, <laughs> Ready? At any rate, Lucy is much more like Rowling's Hermione than my Hermione is. I was like, True. I guess. Yeah. I mean, more like, but not like, like. No, exactly. But ask me why I think it's Benedict 
Oh, please tell us, Rudy. Why do you think it's Benedict 2.0? So Gregory is in love with two different women who are kind of somewhat the same woman because the descriptions of them are kind of the same. Hermione is the beautiful, idealized version of Lucy in the same way that the woman in the mask is the beautiful, idealized version of Sophie. I get a lot of shit from you guys about being the academic person on this podcast, but Rudy, I think you can give me a run for my money. You find things all the time, and it's amazing. I love listening to you. You have the fantasy over the reality. So you sort of have the mask, the woman in the mask versus Sophie, and then you have Hermione, who's just like a little bit blonder, and her eyes are a little bit bluer, and yeah, she won't dance like the woman in the mask. Yeah. You know what? Okay. I buy it. I'm there. I'm there with you. Not going to lie. Felt really fucking clever when I worked it out. Uh, Yeah, you're really right. The parallels are striking. Hermione as the woman in the mask versus Sophie and Lucy as like the real woman behind her. Because he doesn't, he doesn't talk to, Gregory doesn't talk to Hermione all that much. Like the vast majority of, you know, so like he's, she kind of always stays as an ideal. Everything, like, when he learns about her, it's filtered through um, It's filtered through Lucy. So, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Benedictian energy to Gregory. There's that same sort of laissez-faire attitude to life. There's the same, you know, just general understanding that you are good-looking and thus entitled to whatever you want. There, You know, I'm seeing it. And he goes all in on insta-love as soon as he thinks he's in love from seeing somebody across the room. The back of their neck. Yeah, Not even like somebody, her neck. Oh my God. Can I (laughs) tell you what I wrote? I had fucking napes as a note multiple times throughout this book. It's like all three of them have this thing about napes and it's really bloody weird. It's actually true, actually. Is. I have to admit, I asked my husband if he ever noticed the nape of my neck. And he was like, what? No. <laughs> In the past, I haven't really responded to this book. And I've probably read it two or three times before this round. And like on the second page, he talks about the insta love. Like she was his. They belonged together. She knew that. He thinks all this in the prologue. And I was like, this is what I sounded like at 14. And I think changing my perspective on it, like he was a teenager, (laughs) even though he's like 26 or something, helped me get like into his, into his very interesting brain. Look, yeah, I think you're absolutely right because, I mean, and I think it makes sense. Okay, there's two two thoughts have come to me as we've been talking. The first is that I wonder if this is sort of Julia Quinn's response to an insta-love story like she wrote an insta love story and now she's sort of writing an insta love when it doesn't work story like a it's a graduation yeah. I suppose as a, a writer which I think she does reasonably well I think that it works really nicely and I think Lucy is such an engaging character that it the the him falling directly in love with somebody else but Lucy is so strong as a character that we all know that she's never actually in fact second best to Hermione I think what works really strongly is that it works because Gregory is fanciful and and not very thoughtful and quite of a will-o'-the-wisp, will-o'-the-wisp. 
But because Lucy is so pragmatic, it gives this great juxtaposition of this nice sort of crackle effect. And then you have the complication that um, Hermione is Hermione. So (laughs) I think there's a lot of sort of texture there that it could kind of work. But again, I've read this and not liked it before. The second thing that I was going to say is that I think it plays as well because Gregory is like a, a very younger sibling. And so he's never really had to develop any sort of emotional maturity or be a grown-up in any situation before. He's, he's always been a baby. So for him to sort of be stuck in that insta-love, teenage, immediate lust stage makes a lot of sense for him as a character. And I think that his growing up happens through the course of the book. Like we we see Anthony, Benedict, and Colin essentially after they're grown men and have gone through various experiences that make them into who they are whereas Gregory hasn't had any of those experiences yet so this experience is what turns him from being a teenager into being an actual I'm not going to say he's emotionally mature necessarily by the end of it but certainly much more mature than he was at the beginning so I just have a question on the on the topic of insta love how do you feel about Julia Quinn slash Gregory's very sexless interpretation of insta love because he does not have any like actual sexual desire for Hermione. He's actually he's quite explicit in the fact that he doesn't want to kiss her. He just is really struck by her. I wonder if some of it is because he's seen all his older siblings effectively have insta love, even though it's not how any of them worked from a young point of point of view it probably would have looked like that because it's all been all these marriages happened within like two weeks usually (laughs) so it did look for all purposes like insta love but none of his brothers really married any beauties if you think about it yeah um this is a tell way to steal my point from francesca's (laughs) book (laughs) that was shady but like continue (laughs) yeah yeah in some respects, if he insta-loved into Hermione, he fell in love with a vision of someone, someone who would be prettier than all his brother's wives. The end. The reason I asked, though, is because I saw it as Quinn's attempt to dissuade you from latching onto Hermione as the heroine. So she drops, so she drops literary clues like fucking ambles. And yeah, so the first comes really early. So he arrives, he meets, he meets Hermione and Lucy. Hermione leaves first and it's not until Lucy leaves that he suddenly is bored with being at this party and nothing, like, like everything is dull and everything, like, it's not even worth sticking around for the food. And it is very, I think it's very important that it is Hermione who was left first. So he constantly, without actually realizing, he's like, he has an interest in Lucy in the same way that, like, yeah, he has no actual sexual desire for Hermione, but like, he does, while still thinking that he's in love with Hermione, he wants to kiss Lucy. Mm-hmm. Whereas I found the structure of, there was a lot of discussion about how he could turn to his family for anything 
in some of his discussions with Lucy. And then we find out he's someone who doesn't ask for anything. And the finale ends up him having to ask for help from his brothers. Like you could see that was such strong foreshadowing of what was going to happen, probably because of the prologue as well. No, that's what I mean, though. It's messy and heavy handed. Can I, because we keep talking about Hermione, can I just, she's a shit friend, yeah? She's a terrible, terrible friend. Is she? I don't, I don't think she's a great friend. Like she's certainly not Lucy's champion in the way that she could be. She uses, I think, Lucy to take pressure off her rather than because she thinks Lucy is a legitimate great person that people should be falling in love with. She she uses Lucy like she's a human shield, and I do not approve. Mm-hmm. And she knew something was off, and she went off on that bloody honeymoon, and she knew something wasn't right. She just didn't give a shit. So I, I just... And then, like, the, the whole marriage thing with the brother, I'm just like... Get your shit together, woman. Yeah, you know what? I totally agree with you. Lucy's a way better friend than Hermione. And I'm hoping that that um, now that she's a Bridgerton, she gets taken under the wing of all the Bridgerton women and gets shown what true friendship is. Oh. This is the real happy ending of this story. Controversial. Once again, Rudy is on the opposite side of the argument. I can't tell if Kate left the room because she won't acknowledge my, oh, okay, just to get wine. I wondered maybe if you were like, I'm not here for this bullshit. I'm like, no, Rudy, stop talking. I'm leaving the room. No, I'm just getting more wine. <laughs> Woo! Um, so I thought that this was the strongest and most present friendship that we've had in the series. Because we they, like they talk a big game about Eloise and Penelope, but there's not a lot like there's not a lot of them interacting in either of their own books on the page. And then I know you're pulling faces, but like shut the fuck up. I listened to your <laughs> wrong opinions. This <laughs> is just all in aid of your Freudian interpretation. <laughs> yes. No, but like. In Romancing Mr. Bridgerton and in To Sir Philip with Love, there's not a lot of their friendship, like, actually there on the page. They don't, like, they interact as friends in other people's books, but not their own. Whereas this time we had a heroine who had an actual friend who was, like, right there, um, like, with her along the way. And I quite enjoyed that. And I also <laughs> am now realizing that maybe I just have a very different way of being friends with people because um I'm I'm not bothered by how hands off Hermione can be sometimes because um I think I do that (laughs) oh Rudy who hurt you um (laughs) (laughs) I think what you're saying about the validity of what a best friend looks like as not being the same across every friendship is really important. I think that's super important, actually, because as somebody who doesn't really have one true best friend, but has um, like a handful of people that meet different needs in my life and have created sort of a, a friendship group, I suppose, a best friend group rather than, um, just want expecting one person to play that role in my life. Um, I it took me a long time to realize that that was okay. That I, there wasn't something wrong with me because I hadn't found, 
you know, the one person in my life that was going to play all of those roles. So I like seeing different versions of friendship. Um, and I understand what you're saying about Hermione just not being an incredibly demonstrative person. But at the same time, I didn't read her as particularly supportive either. Like, I read Lucy as being very supportive of her. And and to be fair to Hermione, of course, we only have Lucy's point of view. So we don't know what's going on inside Hermione's head. So it's very possible that all of her thoughts are incredibly supportive and warm, even if her actions don't necessarily support that. But I mean, Lucy was always talking about how she felt like Hermione was a sister in everything but blood and... Lucy did a lot to try and ensure Hermione's happiness. I just didn't feel, I sort of felt a little bit like Hermione had never had to rely on being in a positive relationship in order to get what she wanted. So she didn't know quite how to go about doing that because everybody came to her anyway. Everybody took care of her anyway. I don't know, Adele, what do you think? I think in some respects she could mirror Gregory and that everything comes quite easily to him. Hermione that she doesn't have to try to get attention (laughs) Um, and that she sort of fell into this relationship with the secretary which seemed to be based solely on his neck anyway I've never really been that best friend person either I'm not going to be someone who's the maid of honor or a bridesmaid I'm just not that person because I sort of spread myself around Like, I didn't even think I was that person that you would call to pick you up if you needed a ride. And I became that person in the last month, didn't I, Kate? (laughs) So, but I think, like, I'm definitely not someone who is going to say stuff I don't mean to make you feel better. And and for some people, that's a lot. (laughs) That's not necessarily you want someone in, like, you don't want that in a friend. But I just, I think with Hermione... I think the one bit that sold me was when Kate took particular pleasure in the fact that her, her money can't dance. That <laughs> was when I was like, oh, I, I kind of, like, this is not completely selfless, like, her being the human shield to Hermione all the time. Like, she did take a little bit of cynical pleasure in <laughs> the fact that this... Do you, do you mean Lucy took pleasure? Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> I did it again! I was like, I did read it really quickly. Maybe I missed that scene. <laughs> no, never doubt yourself. Always go Adele's muddled the names again. <laughs> and because Kate. But what is what is that? Because like Kate is featured quite prominently. Yeah. Like she's quite overt in her preference for Lucy over Hermione. So, I love like... that about Kate. Like she just sees right through the situation. She knows exactly. It's like she knows what it's like to be the person standing beside the beautiful person. Like she understands yeah, that she... role perfectly. She's the perfect secondary character to bring into this situation. Yeah. This is the book in which Kate becomes Violet. Mm. And she kind of does do a lot of the work that Violet would traditionally do. So it's almost like going to that next generation. Because they are a generation apart, some of the siblings, basically. Mm-hmm. I love that there's a mention that Anthony was a good father to Gregory. It's kind of what I've wanted throughout the whole bloody series is like a reference to he was the father to those final two of the Bridgertons and he did a good job, even though that was his greatest fear is, you know, it was a duty 
And if it was just a duty, he wouldn't have done it as well. So I like Anthony more with every single book because I like Kate with every single book book more as well. It can often be a little bit of fan service that's overdone when you see authors using couples that they've paired off in the past as sort of plot fodder in future books. But I think in this book, they've done, uh, Julia Quinn has done a really good job of having Kate and Anthony there for a reason, not just to show off that they remain really happy, not just to trot them out because past readers will be excited to see them. Like, I think Kate plays a really strong role in creating that parallel between her and Lucy. And I think getting to see Anthony step into his role, I suppose, as a father and not only step into it, but continue it in a way that he didn't expect to be able to in his book is satisfying on a much deeper level than just fan service. Is it Colin or Benedict who who sits in the tree with Gregory? Colin, which is delightful. Like he's not even Colin really is the best sibling. Well that being said, Hyacinth threatening to ruin Lucy when she turns down Gregory is perhaps Hyacinth's most beautiful moment. Like it really was Stunning and very true to character. <laughs> like, I'd be frightened. <laughs> and I do love that that was reflected, that that relationship between the, the two younger siblings and that they are quite protective of one another. We saw that in Hyacinth's book as well. It, it, just, it just nicely encapsulated the series without going too hard, like you said, Kate. It, it, nothing felt on the nose. Um, it all felt quite natural. Like, it felt quite natural that they were all in contact the way that they were trotted into the book felt quite natural as well. It it worked really it worked really nicely for the last book in a long series that we were able to revisit the characters that we loved, but in such a way that they were a natural extension of what was happening in the plot and not just there to, I don't know, wave wave goodbye or give a last hurrah or whatever. Yeah. Where were Anthony and Kate's kids at the house party? Like, where would they have been? They would have been up in the nursery with the nanny, wouldn't they? Surely some of them are, like, obviously not old enough to attend, but, like, old enough to be getting into mischief or for Gregory to take some interest in. Or, like, isn't it weird that they really don't come up? Anthony and Kate have three children, Edmund, born in 1815, Miles, 1817, and Charlotte, 1822. All right, so Edmund and Miles would definitely have been at Eton. And Charlotte would still be in, like, still be in the schoolroom. Oh, okay. Do we want to hop hop right to our What the Featherington moment? Because I have a huge-ass WTF about the fact that they have fucking nine children at the end of this nine kids and by the end Lucy's like oh you know it just gets easier now I just read the newspaper while they pop out oh oops it was twins surprise and I'm like okay I mean yes (laughs) you know statistically (laughs) 
it gets easier. It does not get easy. Like, Jesus fucking Christ. Statistically speaking, she was probably more likely to die in childbirth than have a ninth child. Oh, Jesus, that's grim. Like, <laughs> God, that is grim. Like, nine. Nine oh, kids. Sorry. And twins Bring for the, the last down. Like, nine uh, kids. Uh, like, her last, her twins, she let Benedict, no, excuse me, fuck a Benedict. <laughs> it's catching. You, you got into my head with the Benedict 2.0. Um, she told Gregory that she was pregnant six months after the last time that she gave birth. And given that, you know, you couldn't just pop down to the pharmacy for a preg- for an early response pregnancy test at the time. It had to have been like one or two months of missing her period. So like fucking Gregory, like fucking leave her alone. She is giving vaginal birth in the Regency period, like maybe maybe just jerk off for a month or two and let her recover <laughs> for getting her pregnant again with fucking Amen. Jesus. Oh, wow. Ugh. Yeah. I had feelings about that, my friends. <laughs> I had feelings. Um, so one of my... I, I think that it, w- it might not have been an official What the Featherington of Sir Philip, um, but I did ask you guys why none of the Bridgertons had joined the military and um, finally we have an acknowledgement of the fact that maybe one of the younger sons should um, consider a profession of some kind so Gregory kind of half-heartedly considers becoming a minister a clergyman yeah yeah I don't understand which is laughable like, none of them would be good clergymen. Like, none. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just going to go back to the nine children because I have not expressed all of my feelings about them. Even if Anthony gives him a very reasonable allowance, he's like, oh, it turns out I'm good at investments. And I'm like, nine kids on your ability to, like, buy good stock? Yeesh. Yeah. The whole thing. I would believe that Lucy ended up being the one who had good business skills. Absolutely. That's definitely right. what happened. But Nine kids. I have one, but it's a favorable WTF, which is Lucy starts saying numbers under her breath every time she wants to bore Hermione so she leaves her alone. <laughs> I love that detail. That was straight, that's straight up one of my favorite characterizations where she's like... <laughs> Yeah, if she gets caught spacing out, she insists that she's been doing sums in her head. <laughs> and and as a cover, so she good. will occasionally mumble numbers. <laughs> oh my god, I love Lucy so much. She's just such an enjoyable yeah. character. But I especially love that Lucy's like, I don't understand why Hermione would believe that lie. I canonically hate maths and am bad at it. <laughs> Uh, more food for the um, Hermione's a bad friend. <laughs> Maybe Hermione just thinks that Lucy is trying to improve herself and, like, she believes in Lucy. There's also um, that apparently, according to Hyacinth, Gregory really likes weddings and he cuts her off as she starts talking about how much he's like this wedding and this wedding and this wedding. Did he cry at all the weddings? 
Gregory is 100% a crier, which I'm not shaming him for, by the way. Um, <laughs> you go ahead and cry at weddings, Gregory. That is fine. It does not touch your masculinity whatsoever. But yes, Gregory is 100% a crier. Which kind of really plays into the insta-love bullshit as well. Yeah. That he is a, he's such a romantic, which I love even more that he's with Lucy, who's such a pragmatic. <laughs> it's, it's nice. So my What the Featherington is something that I found quite delightful as well, which is when you're reading the prologue in particular, but I actually would argue the entire book, it is very Miss Butterworth and the Mad Baron in that it takes a long time for anything substantial to happen. Gregory runs to the church for three pages the first three pages are just him like ruminating on how far he's running and how far he's got to run. And the, the church is down the road that he's running to because he's running to the church. At first I was like, all this guy needs is for his mother to have been pecked to death by pigeons. But he doesn't need that because his father was killed by a bee. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't even with your analysis. I need to go and sit in a dark room and just think about all the things that you've said. I thought that was delightful as well. Such a great way to um, enter that book. It's a terrible way to enter the book because it drags. It does that thing that I hate as an editor where it, it starts in media res, which means it starts in the middle of action. And then it has like this action packed three chapters of him run forest running. And then <laughs> like just drops into the drops the pacing into the middle of an incredibly sedate scene, which technically editorially speaking is not great. But that bait and switch between who he's running to stop the wedding of if I was editing it, I probably would have like queried it, but you know, it's okay, JQ. I'm gonna let you get away with it. <laughs> I think Quinn is embracing her in a Sarah Gawley. Like even the chapter excerpts are Gawley-esque. Because that little, those little, like, our heroine, our hero things. But I think it's in his kiss, handled it better. Anyway, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. We don't need to discuss this. I just needed to get it off my chest. Um, I just wanted to chat really quickly about Lucy's fiancé, who, um, in, in exact opposite to Adele, where she gets the names wrong. I just don't remember the names at all. <laughs> Did anybody else picture him as Rupert Everett through the entire book? Because that is exactly who I had in my head the entire time. I was thinking Matt Smith. Oh. I don't have, I, I don't have good mental pictures when I read. Yeah, I'm not a mental picture person either. When, they, when that no, meme went around the internet, I'm very much like I see the words in my head as words, which is what makes me... Yeah, I'm going to toot my own horn. This makes me an excellent editor. <laughs> but um, in my head, uh, Lucy's fiance is 100% played by Rupert Everett. Well, I mean, like the reason that I say it is that I can't picture people. Mm. Like I, when I, yeah, so I, it never occurred to me to think about what he looks like. I couldn't tell you what he looks like. I also really struggle to remember when people are blonde. Um, I mean, everybody's blonde <laughs> in these really books, right? I think that's only fair, reading. Yeah. Like, there are there are some books that I have read more than once, and then I go and reread them. Like, I'll pick them up and be on, like, my fifth reread or something like that and go, holy shit, when did someone make her blonde? Like, 
this happened like that <laughs> happened with this too i did not realize that lucy was going to be blonde um that was a bit of a shock she doesn't feel like a blonde to me she feels like a brunette i think i don't know again i don't picture people in my head when i'm reading like, it which is why i why. never it never ever bothers me that cover models don't look like they're supposed to because pff, fuck if I know. I, I'm, I don't remember covers at all. So really my ability to misremember names is a step up. So, uh, yeah, I, I like that he's such a nice guy, the fiancé that I can't remember the name of. But his oh, father is the fucking worst. Is the fucking worst in the tradition of dads in this series. I guess it's, oh. And then her uncle, also the worst. Like the fact that her teeth were actually surveyed to see if they were like decent and he grabbed her hips. Like, fuck off. Ugh. And as much as the fiance seems, Hasselby. As much as he seems very nice, he didn't stop his uncle from manhandling her. Well, I mean, it turns out in the end that he's not very nice, right? He's the bad guy. Um, Hazelby is the name of her fiancé. We have different pronunciations, Kate. Oh. I mean, I've only ever seen it read. I've only read it, so I have well, no idea. Yeah, no, who knows? has an Australian accent and one of you has a Canadian accent, so that could be just dismissed as a cultural difference. Because I have already declared that he's Hasselby. Uh, look, I'm fine. To bow to your superior pronunciation. I just, but I, there's a part of me that is like, was that sort of some kind of, was I just thinking because like the whole him, her having a fiance was a bit of a hassle, and so like <laughs> hassle be like that's. <laughs> I would love to think she made a JQ made decisions like that. <laughs> oh no, I don't think she did. I, I'm pretty sure that Kate's pronunciation is probably what we're supposed to say. Um, I think I made that connection. Where I'm like, that's how no, I remember him. To lead into Hasselby, I would just normally say that if it was going to be Hasselby, there'd be two S's. But you know what? He's a hassle. We're going to call him Hasselby, <laughs> and I 100% accept and bow to your pronunciation. And he's Hasselby gone. <laughs> Uh, we could just call him Lord Rupert Everett and be done with it. <laughs> um, I I will say I do feel a bit some kind of some way about the fact that Gregory outed Lord Hasselby to Lucy. Like, and then Lucy mm. in turn outs him to her uncle. I mean, like, her uncle definitely knew. So... Really, like, no discretion yes. going on in yeah. these, like, in these Awkward. circles. I mean, it's not great. Also, I'm surprised that Lucy understood being as sheltered as she is. Yeah, not one of the finest written moments for our JQ. Mm. Um, actually, that's a that's a really good point. I'm now that you've mentioned or oh, queried Lucy understanding what it meant to be gay yeah well and also she promises to find him a wife and i was like oh is he going to marry who i mean there's there are elements to that that are deeply problematic as well like i mean i'm sure that there are 
people in the world that would be happy to be married to him in order to not have to deal with that side of marriage. But he but he's very time, definitely expecting to have heirs because mm. he has a quote odious cousin. Yeah. The more of these books I read, the more fascinated I am with Julia Quinn's fascination with death as a plot point. Or like death <laughs> as a as like a maybe not even a plot point, but like a driving force for the plot. Because like we never yeah, there there are no. She's like she's like Disney. There are no whole families in Julia Quinn's world. It's true, actually. Every almost everybody is orphaned in one way or another, aren't they? Yeah. Well, who would you say is not? Because I would argue everyone is. Yeah. No, I'm trying to think. Did Kate have both parents? No, she only had her mum. She had her stepmother. Her stepmother. Sophia that's right. Was- Oh right, he oh, was orphaned. Yeah. Um, Penelope's dad has passed away. Yep. Simon's uh, only had his dad, who was a dick, and his mother is dead. Um, yeah. You're right. Yeah. You're right. There is a definite Julie Quinn Disney correlation and, here. Yeah. Philip's parents are gone, and I know Jessica had a couple of women, but no men. Yeah. Like, I do know that there, some of it is necessity because otherwise you can't have young, eligible peerage men. Like, you can't have a title yeah. if your father's alive type stuff. But even, yeah, like, even the women, they're not coming from, like, whole families or, like, stable families. And it just, yeah, it's fascinating. And this was the same. Like, Lucy doesn't have a mum. Um... Which is, oh, actually, Lucy doesn't have either of her parents. And that is a big part of why she is, like, a little bit of a, like, she's so hungry for affection. And in a way that I don't think she actually would, like, she doesn't fully recognize because she does consider herself very pragmatic and all of the things. But, like, yeah, that girl is hungry for affection. It's what makes me think all of the, oh, go ahead, Adele. Basically, they all married people who would be easily to indoctrinate into Bridgerton dun, dum. Sorry, Bridgerton dum. <laughs> like they just get adopted into Bridgerton fam and they're all happily grateful for it. It's like a cult. They don't even have to get rid of their old lives because their old lives are dead. Like it's quite weird. Yeah, and they do all create these stable families. Okay, hold on just a second because I'm doing math. So Simon and Daphne have at least four kids. Anthony has three. Benedict, I think, has four as well. At the time of this book, yes. At the time, Colin and Penelope, presumably everybody else had, like Eloise at least has one more other than Oliver and Amanda. And then Colin and Penelope had two. Have two. Eloise and Philip have Oliver and Amanda plus two, so they have four. four. One of which is named Penelope, which supports Rudy's claim. <laughs> <laughs> Francesca and Michael at the time of this book do not have any children. 
And uh, Hyacinth and um, Gareth have one, George. And then, Gre- and then presumably Gregory and Lucy have nine. So presumably at least the couples who hadn't had kids yet or had only had one are going to have more. So realistically, by the time these siblings all have all finished procreating, they essentially become half of the ton. Like, really. Like, the Bridgertons are everywhere. You cannot escape them. They are like a virus. My dream of, like, going into the future with this series, Bridgerton, the next generation, the Bridgertons actually take a leaf out of the Smith's Mythe playbook and start putting on very elaborate productions. You know that they would. <laughs> oh my God, they could do the complete works of Shakespeare just among them. It would be amazing. That's how, like, that's how they go. They've got all of the cousins get roped into it. This is how they roll as a family. They're that weird, like, fucking cult family. That does plays and musicals. <laughs> I have one disappointment in this, though. My one sadness in all of this is Violet is still not getting any. It's been like twenty-five years. I mean, do we know? Do we know for sure that she's not getting any? Do we know that there's no strapping footman or like stable hand in the Bridgerton household that's like doing extracurricular duties for her? It depends on where you stand on authorial intent. Mm. Because we know what Ju- we, I, I definitely have seen um, Julia Quinn talk about Violet won't get a book because she's had her one true love of mm. her life and it would be too sad to write that one knowing that it would end quite early but also too sad to write any kind of second chance version of a romance because she's had her one true love and what she's what julia quinn is failing to understand (laughs) is that sometimes you just want to get fucked it doesn't need to be a romance erotica exists right she can hook up with the hot footman it's okay just meet that need yes he's never going to replace you know, her husband, but she's, you know, she's a vibrant woman. She's got needs. I in look in my head, Canon, Violet is satisfied in all areas of her life. <laughs> Nicely put. <laughs> <sighs> On the way to the wedding also answered another question that I had throughout the series, which was why didn't Eloise ever consider somebody of like a lower rank or outside of the peerage as someone to marry. And I think we get answered like quite definitively that Julia Quinn doesn't believe in those kinds of relationships, those upstairs, downstairs relationships. Cause um, our, our one example, like one true example we've had was Hermione and the secretary. And um, that was very definitely not ideal so I felt somewhat vindicated in that moment. I was like, I still think and that yet, it's wrong and, and it deserved. <laughs> yeah. And yet the brother did really nothing to win Hermione's hand either, other than give her the flutters. So 
Like, don't don't pretend you don't know what that means. I do love that Kate still hates opera singers. (laughs) That's a good callback. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) Look, it's just. I really liked Disney's Kiss a lot more than I anticipated. I thought it was a really great way to wind up eight an eight series book, which is a lot for anyone. Mm. <laughs> um, and it just good or bad, it sustained my interest and my emotions throughout. Um, I really do give a shit about this family, and as do like millions of readers across the world. So I think. This has been a really good use of our time. (laughs) Go team. Um, On the Way to the Wedding is not only the first book in this series that I read. Like, I started the series with this the first time I read it. I know. Um, It's actually the first Julia Quinn I ever read. Oh, my God. Isn't that like it's the weirdest choice? I picked it up from the library. It is a weird choice. I grabbed it from the library. I I have a tendency to read things like I I just read like what I can get. I'm I'm not super like concerned about reading in order. So I very definitely this is the fir- I think this is actually the first time that I've ever read from 1 through 8 chronologically in order. But yeah. So On the Way to the Wedding was my very first Julia Quinn read ever. And then after that, Lord Cavendish, I presume. <laughs> Which wow. is an equally weird choice. Yeah, you have so light and unusual Julia Quinn journey. Oh. Now it's time for What Would Dem Do? This is where we imagine that a character from another favourite book has written to the terror of the ton, Lady Danbury, to ask for advice. Today's letter is from A.J. Felipe from No Two Ways by Chi Yu Rodriguez. Dear Lady Danbury, I've fallen in deep lust with this incredibly hot makeup artist, but she's not cool with my bisexuality. What should I do? Tell her to suck it up. Like the fact that she's not cool with your bisexuality is her problem, not yours. Like, A, is she worth it to you? And B, just tell her to get over it. Like, her biphobia is not a reflection on you. That is true and right and a good answer. I think that Lady Danbury would tell AJ to sign up for a reality dating television show that the makeup artist may or may not work for. (laughs) Tell I read this, <laughs> so that then they are forced to interact again in a platonic way, and maybe the makeup artist will get the fuck over herself because Kate's right, biphobia is bullshit. Biphobia is such oh. bullshit. Like Jesus. Um. So Adele, tell us about this book. <laughs> Uh, So this book is a novella uh, by a Filipino writer and it's based in Manila and it it does have a reality TV kind of component to it, Um, but it's about a um, 
the heroine is AJ Felipe and she falls in love with this, uh, well, love, lust, with this hot makeup artist called Jackie. And she's also trying to navigate the fact that she just thought she'd make a choice one day and she's very much coming to the point of her life where she realises she's bi and she's cool with that and she's found this woman who she's really into but she's not okay with it. (laughs) It's a really short read actually. It's 124 pages and it's about coming to grips with the what you want for yourself and what you won't allow others to take from you. I will say, like, one of the things that I love about it is that it's kind of nice that not only is it is um, No Two Ways and Own Voices um, queer romance set in the Philippines, it's like, yeah, it's it's a bit of a dirty book, which is pretty chill, pretty great. That's all for this episode of What Would Danbury Do? We'll be back in a fortnight with a bonus episode to wrap up the series overall and share our hopes and dreams for the Netflix series. If you have any thoughts, theories, comments, or questions, please send us a message or record yourself. We really want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at BridgertonPod or send us an email at BridgertonPod at gmail.com. This episode was recorded on the traditional and unceded land of the Gadigal, Wurundjeri, and Boon people, and edited by audio producer Rudy Bremer on Gadigal Country. Thanks for listening, and remember, WWDD.